Y'all, Scott found out like 12 hours ago he was playing this morning. So I know we don't usually clap, so let's not clap at a Presbyterian church. But go tell him afterwards how awesome he's done uh, and how grateful we are uh, this morning. Uh, would you turn with me to our uh, scripture reading this morning? It is Matthew uh, chapter 20, uh, verse uh, we pick up uh, at verse 29. You can find our text on page 825 uh, in your pew Bibles, uh, page 825. This is a short text. It's a brief uh, account, uh, another healing that Jesus performs. And we've seen a number of these. Maybe we should just skip this and move on uh, to the impressive triumphal entry. That's coming next, right? We're sort of in between these uh, giant uh, texts and passages, but we need to camp out here, at least for a morning, uh, to see what Jesus is doing. And what Jesus is doing is he's showing us who he is. Of course he is. Over and over again throughout this book, he shows us uh, who he is. But here in particular, as he heals blind men, we see who he is as he is beginning the final stage of his ministry, his final week uh, of life on this earth as he heads into uh, Jerusalem. So follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them, And said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. The grass withers, the flower fades. Lord, our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord, open our eyes that we, in these very minutes, would see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. What does it feel like to be seen by someone? You know that phrase or that idea, to be seen by someone, not that they look at you and they know you know what color your hair and your eyes are but really be seen by someone to someone knows you they understand you they can sympathize with you they can recognize what you're going through they can affirm you maybe someone's said to you before hey i see you and i see you struggling i see you working hard i see you trying your best i see you succeeding i see you failing <laughs> but i see you and that that experience of, of feeling seen doesn't always happen to us. It doesn't happen all that often. It's a great thing, isn't it? When somebody else sees us for who we really are. It's an experience that, quite frankly, I don't think Jesus had very often in his life on earth. We have seen for weeks and weeks in this section of Matthew that concludes this morning. We start a new section next week. That people just don't see Jesus. They, of course, see him. They don't bump into him. He's not invisible. But they don't really see him for who he is. 
They know his name and they hear his claims. When push comes to shove, their responses to Jesus reveal they don't really see him for who he is. So after person after person, group after group, fails to see Jesus, lo and behold, who is it at the end of Matthew 20 that actually sees Jesus? It's two blind men. And they're going to be our teachers this morning. The blind men are going to teach us how to see Jesus. And all of you are looking at me right now, so I know you see. But let's learn from our blind brothers how to see Jesus. Here's our our simple idea today. The blind men help us to see Jesus with eyes of faith. The blind men help us to see Jesus with eyes of faith. This story is going to follow in a couple weeks a couple months maybe, when we get to Matthew 23, a famous set of woes where Jesus speaks curses against the religious leaders who rejected him. And here's what he's going to say to them, a couple of his choice words. He's going to say to them, woe to you blind guides, you blind fools, you blind men. Again, you blind guides, and finally, you blind Pharisees. I think you know this, those people could actually see him with their physical eyes, but they're blind. The men who are physically blind see Jesus. Who do we want to learn from this morning? What do the blind men see? That's what I want to show you. There are three spiritual realities about Jesus that apparently only the blind guys, at least in this section of Matthew, only the blind men see. First, the blind men see Jesus' position. They see his titles. They see who Jesus proclaims and claims to be. Go back to the first verse, uh, our setting. The crowd is traveling. We have followed Jesus uh, for weeks now from up north, his final journey to Jerusalem. This is the final step. He will enter Jerusalem famously. We'll see that next week. He's sort of the last stop through Jericho. And as he goes through Jericho, there's a crowd following him. They're going to head towards the Passover celebration, the annual celebration in Jerusalem. And behold, Matthew tells us, there are two blind men sitting by the roadside and they hear that Jesus is passing. Maybe their hearing is slightly more attuned because they can't see uh, with their eyes. And they cry out to Jesus. Their cry every time they speak, they speak three times in our little passage, they begin with the word Lord. They address him with his title, Lord. Now that title can be one of two things, or it can sort of be both. In one sense, it can just be sir, right? I mean, if you were raised in the South, mom and dad might have taught you to say sir and ma'am, right? And we, we still want our kids to try to do that. So maybe that's all this is. Maybe these are just Southern raised, polite beggars, giving Jesus the sir title. Except that what they actually ask him to do is something that you don't just ask politely for any old person to do. They're asking him to do something that only the divine can do. We're going to see their request a little bit more in detail in a moment. But they ask twice, they repeat the same phrase, have mercy on us. They are ascribing to Jesus position that he claims for himself and addressing him in a way that he does something that only God can do. 
So here at the jump, their first words to him show us that they understand his position. They understand who he claims to be, which is God himself and Lord. And then they address him twice as the son of David. Now you kids know your Bible stories and you know that Jesus' dad, right, in the family tree isn't David. So that sounds kind of confusing, right? But if we trace his family tree back, 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 his great, 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 great grandfather and keep going... If you want to read that, it's in Matthew chapter 1. We get all the way back to who? King David. King David, the great king in Israel's history, the one under whom the kingdom flourished and grew and was safe and was protected until it wasn't at the end. The ideal king has had many sons. And so here comes, after many years and many centuries, one son who they ascribe Not just the name, but the title, the son of David, the son of the great king. They're associating with Jesus now everything associated with the greatest king in Israel's history. They are wanting and believing he is like David. He is, as the Hebrew writers would use the title, the Messiah. This is a messianic title and it brings with it messianic expectations. You don't just call your buddy as a nickname, son of David, right? This brings with it a whole host of expectations, promises that they hope are fulfilled in Jesus. They believe walking right in front of them that everybody sees, but they only hear is the king of Israel, the son of David. They're imagining a couple key verses in scripture that look forward to this king. The book of Isaiah chapter 35 says this, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He will come with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then, the prophet says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And not just that. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is the messianic expectation. When blind men see and deaf men hear, the king has arrived. Do you remember in Matthew 11 when John the Baptist's disciples wondered if Jesus was the Christ who was to come? And they sent messengers, or he sent messengers to ask Jesus. And Jesus responded to them and said, go and tell John what you see and hear. Number one, the blind receive their sight. The leper I'm sorry, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and on and on and on. That's his answer. How do we know if the Christ, same word, Messiah, is here? Blind people are seeing, he says. Now, that's a pretty cool promise for any of us, right? We would love to live in a world where sick people are healed. Even those of us who are mostly healthy would love that world to live in. But imagine the guys on the side of the road hearing this because they don't just have some huge sort of uh, uh, like universal expectations that Messiah is here. Their expectation of the the arrival of the Messiah is incredibly personal, right? It is directly related to their eyes. They have heard those promises with different ears than those of us who see, right? They have heard those promises wondering if they are true, hoping that they are true. And now that the king, the son of David, is walking by. Is it time now for the blind to see? Is this it? Is this the moment our people have waited centuries for, that we have waited decades for? 
And they then, of all the crowds, call him the son of David. They see what the crowds can't see. And they see not despite the fact that their eyes don't work. I actually think it's because the fact that their physical eyes don't work. Their suffering has prepared them for the arrival of the Messiah in a way that the strong and the healthy and the powerful surrounding him could never see. I believe these men one day will testify that their blindness was a blessing because in it they saw Jesus. They saw the king when all those around him missed it. That's a hard truth for some of us right now. That maybe God has put suffering in your life so that you will know Christ better. And that the lack of suffering in your life might actually prevent you from knowing the Lord. And so God, in his severe mercies at times, brings suffering so you know him better. I believe those men will testify to that. I, I believe these men would rejoice after maybe a couple weeks <laughs> of all those moments they could not physically see because for this moment they were prepared to see Christ. The cry goes up from these men, Lord, 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 Son of David, Son of David. They see Jesus' position and they begin a chorus of cries that will grow and explode at the arrival into Jerusalem itself. You note they're in Jericho. They're actually leaving Jericho. Jericho was sort of known as the gateway for pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. So this is commonly the way that the, the Jewish people lived in the north. They would sort of cross the river on this side, as you're looking, and they would go south. They would cross back over into Jerusalem. They cross the river again. They go through Jericho. It's like the last step. Right? So when you're driving home from going to the beach and you see our beautiful mountains and you're like, yeah, we're almost there, right? That's it. They're leaving Jericho. They're just, the next step is arrival at Jerusalem. And the heralds of the arriving king are the strong soldiers in the land. The religious powerful leaders who go before him and march with triumph and glory. No. The cry that heralds the arrival of the king are two begging blind men. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. What better picture is this of his kingdom than the heralds that go before him? Needy, begging, blind men. That's who sees Jesus. And I wonder if you just take a moment this morning and consider if you're too strong today to see Jesus on your own. Are you too healthy? Do you have everything in your life together such that you don't need Jesus and he is walking by and you have no ideas that he's there? I mean, you're in church, you're hearing me talk about him, but you're just watching a performance, right? When you look at Jesus, who do you see? Who do you really see? The blind men see who he really is, the son of David. Makes you wonder, what does Jesus see when he looks back at them? <laughs> what does Jesus see when he looks at us? Well, that's actually the second spiritual reality I want to show you in this text. 
What are the blind men at? What else do they see about Jesus? They see Jesus' pity. They see his position, number one. They see his pity, number two. What do these men, these humble, begging men, what is their appeal to Jesus? Have mercy on us. They ask for mercy. And I want to say finally, finally we see some humility from somebody else in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Finally, we don't see a mom wanting her kids to have the best position of power. Finally, we don't see some kids who themselves want the best position of power. Finally, we don't see Peter grumbling that he gave up a lot for Jesus. What's he going to get returned? Finally, we see disciples not sending kids away from Jesus because he's too important for them. Finally, we see a little bit of humility as Jesus walks on his way to Jerusalem. These men appeal not for justice, but they appeal for mercy. It is spiritually instructive for us that these men are physically and financially beggars. Beggars who know how to ask for mercy. Some of you will remember the story in the Old Testament of uh, Naaman, right? The great, strong, important man. And he gets leprosy. And he doesn't know how to treat it. All the, the strong and important people in his own kingdom don't know how to treat it. And so he, he hears of a man named Elisha, a man of God. And he goes to Elisha to treat his leprosy. He's a very important man. He wants everybody to know he's a, a very important man to go get his leprosy treated. And he is told by Elisha, just go and wash in the Jordan River. Your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. And do you all remember how he responds to this? He gets angry. He's, he's too important for the, the stinky backwater Jordan, right? I mean, look at all these very important, very strong, very big rivers that he could go wash in better than, he says, the waters of Israel. Could I not just go wash in them and be clean? And he went away in a rage. He's too good. He was too strong. He was too pride. Proud, excuse me, for the rivers of Israel. Learn from the blind men to swallow our pride. To go to the humblest of places. To go to the unimportant places. To go where Christ calls us to go and cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Many of you saw the news uh, the last, this last week uh, that in our denomination, the PCA, uh, two very well-known pastors passed away. Some of you have shared the news with me. I know many of you are aware of it. You might not know these men. One name is Harry Reeder. Their name is Tim Keller. They're well-known for different reasons. They passed away on, on back-to-back days. <laughs> uh, these men had, had done wonderful work for Christ uh, and his church. They were each known for gifts of teaching Uh, They pastored very large churches. They had written books. They had sort of broad and expansive ministries. They traveled. Uh, People loved to come and have them travel to their town uh, because they were so gifted, right? But what's come out in the the couple days since they've passed are not stories of how gifted they are, but actually stories of how gentle they were. Stories people will, will write of how one of them spent a phone call with them or an afternoon with lowly them. 
They both invested in younger pastors and younger ministers who could help them in no way. Their legacy is not one of the the books and the, the big pulpits and the big crowds. Their legacy is their humility and their gentleness and their kindness. They're remembering the words of Jesus that the last will be first. We need more pastors like those two men. We need less heroes that are going to go charge the hill. And we need more kind and merciful and gentle men who will spend a long phone call with an unimportant person. We need leaders like this here at our church. We need more elders and deacons at Covenant Reform, not Naaman's. We need more blind beggars who just know they need Jesus. Just know our need for the pity of Christ. The blind men get it. Jesus gets it. But you know who doesn't get it again are the crowds. Look how the crowds react. They say, go away, right? The crowds, verse 31, rebuked them, the blind men, Imagine rebuking blind beggars, right? Just think about that for a second. (laughs) Telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. They think you don't have any time for this, right? He's He's too important for these kids. Keep the kids away from Jesus. Remember they said that before? The mother who only believes that those close to Jesus are the most important ones from last week. They think Jesus doesn't have time for this. He's too important for this. He's too strong for this. He's, he, he's got a mission that can't imagine stopping for this. And look what happens. They cry out again, and then verse 32, and stopping, Jesus called to them. Jesus stops. And this isn't a political photo op, you know, plugging some people there, ready to stop. The camera's just in the right place. So he looks like such a man of the people. No self-important leader would do this. We saw last week the Gentile leaders. No Gentile leader would do this. And just think for a second, what has Jesus been talking about where he's going chapter after chapter? He's been telling us where he's going. He's been telling us of the betrayal he's going to experience when he gets to Jerusalem. He's been telling us of how he's going to be mocked and flogged. He's been telling us even that he's going to be crucified. And every step he gets closer, that gets clearer and clearer. And so he's with the crowds. They can't wait, right? It's Passover feast, right? This is like party time in Israel. We're all going to Jerusalem. We're all gathering together. We're going to see the people we've missed. We're going to gather at the market, right? We're going to have all these celebrations. We don't have to work this week, right? It's like this huge spring break party going on in Jerusalem. And in the middle of it is Jesus. And he's not yet carrying his physical cross, but he knows exactly where he's going. Do you think we could excuse Jesus for a moment for not stopping for these two blind guys? I mean, you know when you've got a lot on your mind and you just ignore the people around you. You know when you've got something stressful coming up next week and you've got blinders on and you don't see the people around you. I mean, nobody had quite a worse work week coming up than Jesus, right? And yet, what does he do? He stops. He has concern and pity for the lowest people around him. Your concerns are never too small for our Lord. Your suffering, your anguish, your loneliness, your anger, it's never too small for our Lord. 
We read verse 34, Jesus in pity touched their eyes. The second time he's healed two blind men. Uh, it kind of confuses commentators. Is it just the same story twice? It's not. There's too many differences. One of the differences is the emphasis on compassion. The emphasis that the Lord of the universe has pity on two blind men, men whose concerns are nowhere near as bad as his own at the moment. As one author says, it's that deep down feeling of heartache for someone. You know, with kids, they love to get some pity from mom and dad, right? And they're pretty good at it. And sometimes they fall down in a room and, and they start crying and mom and dad doesn't really look at them or they're in the other room. And so what do the kids do? They get up and they dry their eyes and they go to the other room and they fall down again, right? <laughs> and mom's still like, yeah, whatever. And then they get up and they get closer to mom and they fall down again, right? They're trying to appeal to our, uh, the pity of parents who have quite honestly had enough, <laughs> It's shocking then that Jesus, who is self-sufficient in and of himself, very God of very God, describes himself in his word as moved by your suffering. That he is affected by your sorrow. That he feels touched by your plight. And his compassion is not limited like ours is, by our finitude or even by our own sin, right? I like to think of myself as a compassionate person. I'm sure many of you do as well. But man, that compassion, it's pretty, it's pretty limited, right? <laughs> I can't really send it that far. And it doesn't last that long. The compassion of God on needy and sorrowing people like us never runs out. Look what he does out of his compassion. He, he, he pities them. We read in verse 34, he touched their eyes. Now, why did he touch them? We've already seen this. Jesus can heal without touching. If I had Jesus' power, that's kind of how I would do it, right? Bang, bang, bang. I don't want to, don't get these suffering people near me, right? We see it other places. He just speaks the word and somebody else is healed. So why does he touch them? Yeah, the better question is actually is who does he touch? We can go back through the gospel. Just let me, we've already preached on all these, but just remember with me who Jesus touches. The first person he touches is a leper. Matthew 9, the, one who's, the ones who are untouchable. Next he touches Peter's mother-in-law, who is sick with fever. Then he touches a little girl who has died. You remember this story. Everybody thinks, don't go in there, it's, it's over. And he reaches and he touches her and he brings her back to life. A few chapters later, they're in a boat. Peter goes out to walk to Jesus and Peter begins to sink. Remember this? Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the waves. He can speak a word and it ceases. But what does he do for Peter? He takes him by the hand and he brings him back. We see on the Mount of Transfiguration... When the disciples are terrified at this glimpse of the transfigured Christ and the beauty and the holiness of God and they fall down and Jesus touches them there. The little children, the disciples wanted to get nowhere near Jesus. He takes them in his arms. He touches the unworthy. He touches the undeserving. He touches the untouchable. The Lord of all the world 
comes and particularly touches those who do not deserve his very touch. That emotional connection, that comfort, that assurance that we get from a physical touch, our Lord comes in human flesh to touch the sick and the needy. It's more than just comforting us. It gets better. The blind, in particular, when we go back in the verses of the Old Testament, we read in the purity laws in books like Leviticus and others uh, that there are certain blemishes. That's the Old Testament word. There are certain blemishes. People and animals that are not perfect. They have a blemish. Usually that blemish somehow keeps them from God. We even read uh, of the sons of Aaron, the priests, that they could serve and they would go and serve God in the inner sanctuaries unless they had certain blemishes, one of which was blindness. And so a blind man could only get so close to God. And he was stopped and he couldn't get any closer. And now God comes to the blind man. He comes to people that cannot come to him. And that's all of us. The Bible speaks figuratively of a wall of separation between a sinful people and a holy God. We see this in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sin and rebel and God kicks them out and he he puts the the angels with the flaming swords right there at the doorway of Eden so they can't return. There's a separation from the place they dwelt with God and the world around them. We see it in the temple that that inner place, the holiest of holies, is guarded by a thick curtain to keep unholy, blemished people out. And so when Jesus goes throughout his ministry and he only touches the unworthy, the undeserving, and the untouchable, it's like he's pulling little strands out of that curtain of separation. He's getting some chinks in the wall that separates a holy God from sinful men so that when Jesus dies on the cross, we should not be surprised to read what happens to that curtain. is ripped into. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of that in just one touch of the blind man's eyes. You may be wondering, can he really do this? I mean, this is a lot. That's a lot just in one touch, right? Let me show you the final thing, the final spiritual reality the blind men see. It's Jesus' power. They see his power. How often have you pitied someone, but you're powerless to do anything about it? Right? You have mercy on someone you want to help, but you can't. You, you, you don't know what to do. You don't have the resources. You don't have the time. You, you, you cannot help them. But for Jesus, his pity moves to power. Because we see finally in verse 34, he, he touches their eyes. And what happens? Immediately. They recover their sight. Some of you I know have had LASIK surgery, right? I mean, that's pretty incredible. We live in a world where we can shine lasers in people's eyes and sharp knives and they're going to be fine, right? Their sight's going to get better. How long does that take, though? I don't know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. It depends how much work they have to do, how good the surgeon is. Right here, it's immediate. Maybe you've seen those videos of people that regain their functions, right? They can hear again. 
Right? They have that hearing aid, and all of a sudden they're hearing for the first time, and there's that look of, of joy on their face. So they come out of uh, surgery, and they can see better than they ever have before, and they're amazed at, at the colors and the detail and the beauty they can see in the world around him. Do you see what this man saw when his eyes worked for the first time? Jesus. Their first sight in years, decades, maybe their whole life, is the Lord of glory. Before their eyes. Are we surprised at the end of the passage that they follow him? Of course not. If anyone's following Jesus in this gospel, it's these guys. It's the blind men. The power of Jesus goes out. And do you note who it always benefits? Not him. Not the rich and the strong and the mighty. It benefits the sick. It benefits those with a blemish. It benefits the very young and the very old. It benefits the lame and the weak and the grieving and the sorrowing and the poor. That's who Jesus uses his power to heal. So prophet Isaiah again says he took our illness and bore our diseases. He takes it on himself. And he gets to the cross. And there heaped upon His head is all of it. All of it. And he takes it all. The cross is the ultimate picture of the power of Jesus to heal us. This is a glimpse. The cross is everything. Because in the cross is the promise not only, although it's a a whole lot of our physical healing, That the aches and pains go away, that the limp goes away, that the blindness goes away, that the cancer goes away. The death itself even goes away. But it's the spiritual promise. The the spiritual ills that so plague us, the cross does away with them all. Cleanses us from the guilt and stain of sin, the power of God on behalf of the poor and the needy. Dear friends, do you see Jesus today? See him this morning and come to him. See his position. The Lord, the son of David, he is God the king sent to bring a kingdom of peace and healing, of comfort and joy. Come and see this king and bow before him. See his pity. See the one who is moved by your plight who looks at you and said, she's not too far gone. He's not too bad. It's not too late. Come to the Lord of pity and be forgiven. And see his power. He's the only one that can heal. He alone can heal all that plagues us. He alone takes our illness and bears our disease. Come to him and be healed. May we learn from the blind men to see Jesus with eyes of faith. The King of glory is with us. The Son of David is drawing near. Come to him, and he will have mercy on your very souls. Let's pray. Lord, we would see Jesus. Give us eyes to see Jesus. Our spiritual eyesight 
is blind or it is dim or it is growing, Lord, shine the light of your gospel on our very souls this moment and enliven us to see and lay hold of Christ, to believe upon him and to know the power of his resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to prepare for the Lord's table by singing hymn 277 before the throne of God.